Welcome everybody to Learn with Lowell. I'm your host Lowell. Uh, we're going to get into this instead of talking about uh, subscribing and all that lame stuff. Today we're joined with Dr. Leon Vanstone, ro- self, a self-described rocket scientist, storyteller, and idiot. Today we're going to find out which one of those three things reigns supreme. And so, so uh, I want to I want to yeah. take ev- everyone. Let's let's welcome the great Leon, which is a, a, a Star Fox reference for anyone out there from the '90s. Uh, Leon, welcome to the show. Roll. Yeah, do a barrel roll. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I think Rain Supreme has got to be the biggest of those three is Idiot. That's got to be my biggest, my, my biggest kind of piece. Like there is definitely far more in the world I don't know than I do. Yeah. Right? In terms of, in terms of the, all the rocket science, all the storytelling and all the idiocy I possess, idiocy is by far the largest chunk of that. Well, I think the, the humility is good. How many people do you know that have the the smallest toes into the ocean of knowledge that just feel like they they're on the top of the world, you know? Then they they get stuck there and they never do anything interesting. So it's yeah, good the, that you feel that way. The Dunning Kruger effect is real, man. Yes, yeah. The uh, so the first, we were just talking about this, and uh, so I thought let's start with this uh, China hypersonic rockets or whatever they're called missiles and the the U.S. fleet. So I was saying previously to this that like hey we're probably fine because the u.s fleet would probably not go anywhere near where china could lob a missile and take us out with without us being able to counteract it and uh leon said he had thoughts so leon where (laughs) what could china take out our fleet is that like a an actual concern or do you think that the u.s is sufficiently non-suicidal in terms of you know being near them i mean the u.s the u.s the u.s Armed forces certainly are anything but suicidal. Um, mm-hmm. the, the problem, I suppose, comes down to willingness to escalate. So a core tenant, this is why high percent missiles became such a problem so quickly, right, was that core tenant of U.S. force projection has been to build aircraft carriers. So the way the U.S. typically deploys force around the world is with, uh, with its aircraft carriers. There are some forward bases but especially as it invested more in the aircraft carriers, it, it kind of scaled some of those back. And so that, and an aircraft carriers is relatively vulnerable. It's a giant floating city. Um, and, and, but you know, there, there are steps you can take. You have other ships that go with it and what age protected, et cetera. Um, but the problem you have with a hypersonic um, vehicle or, or anything doing you know, being hypersonic is if it's ballistic, right? You, it launches up and it comes down on top of you. So you can really get an opportunity to see it coming. Even if you've launched it from somewhere else on the other side of the planet, it has to go very high. So if you mm-hmm. think of, you know, a circle, you know, you can't see over the curvature of the earth. So yeah. you see off sideways. So it goes, it spends a long time over the horizon. So you can see it with something, but a hypersonic, a hypersonic vehicle by design flies very low and very fast. So by the time you've seen it, it's almost going to be on top of you. And there isn't really much you can do about that in terms of modern capabilities. Um, def- even defending, I mean, the U.S. has done a great deal to move its hypersonic capabilities forward, uh, as is readily readable in you know, most press releases these days. Um, but nonetheless... The, the ability to sort of shoot a hypersonic missile is, is very difficult. And so it is disproportionately problematic for the U.S. military as 
by a very large number. They have far more aircraft carriers than almost anyone else. I forget how many China has, but it's... I think it's two. Yeah, it's like... And they're local. They're local. They they can't really go beyond... uh, They're like a blue water navy. They don't go far. They're diesel too. Right. It's like, uh, you know, it's something like America has the same number of aircraft carriers pretty much as the rest of the world, but together... And most of those other aircraft carriers are owned by allied nations. So, um, but that kind of strategy, you know, the, much of the, the U.S. force, the strategy of its force protection relies on, on the protection of those aircraft carriers and a hypersonic missile is a problem. Of course, if China is hitting aircraft carriers with hypersonic missiles, um, something in international relations has gone horrendously wrong. And uh, it's time for us all to talk about that. So, so, so the idea is that they potentially, in theory, they could potentially hit a a, a carrier or a, a task force. But the thing that deters them is this idea that there'll be an escalation to level that they're that the, that would make Russia probably blush. Like it, it like the the response to that would destabilize them. Unless China has a very good reason to blow a hole in a U.S. aircraft carrier and and sink it to the bottom of the ocean, um, like incredibly good reason, the response to that strike, assuming that you know the the everyone here is like willing to go along with it, right? The president or whoever says yes, the appropriate response to that strike is nuclear. Mm. That's how you respond. That's that's the next. That's what you do. They don't have any aircraft carriage. You can't really sink them back. So you nuke them. That's if you if you are if you aren't looking to de-escalate, that's your response. Mm. And it's a bad day for everyone. Let's be honest. Would would uh, <laughs> potential sanctions and stuff work effectively if you just cut off China from the rest of the world like they did Russia? Would that do anything to them? Um, or are they just too big on I mean, their own? The domestic market in in China is enormous, although they rely heavily on the rest of the world for much of the money they make. To my understanding, and I'm certainly not a politics major or anything, they have substantial currency reserves and there's enough people in the world that don't care about kind of the Western world point of view that I'm not sure how important the sanctions would be. But I mean, moreover, you know, that that is the... um, yeah, if China's hitting U.S. aircraft carriers with hypersonic missiles, there's been a very big that you know that that's a declaration of war. That's what it is, right? It's like the it's, it's like the sinking of a famous U.S. boat during <laughs> during World War II, right? Like mm-hmm. um, that starts a war. That's that's what that is. So yeah. Um, yeah, they can do it, and yeah, it's a problem in the event of war with China. I think neither nation wants that, though. We, everyone knows that would just be a bad day. So the, I think the Israelis have something called like the Iron Dome. So when missiles come in, they just kind of shoot them out of the sky. It's pretty cool to see the video of them. But if a hypersonic uh, missile is coming fast enough, don't we? Isn't it possible like track it with a laser or something, and then fire out like a little puck and like have it hit it and then detonate it like the engine or fuel, or, or is it you just? Might. You might be able to track it that way. The problem you have is it's very low, so and it's moving very fast. The first thing you need to do is get radar lock. It's going to be tough, right, on anything. 
and then you've got to try and hit it with something, which means you need to know where it's going to be. But, you know, it can move. It's hard to hit. Um, again, all, all stuff that's out there publicly and news sources, you know, that they they will move around. And so you 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 can fire you have to fire where you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And it's not ballistic, so it doesn't just fall down, right? So where you think it's going to be isn't necessarily where it will be. You just program them to move around a bit and it makes them very hard to hit. So yes, it's doable. It's just very challenging. And you could do it with something like a laser maybe, but that comes with it. Just, just like there are other people trying to target things with lasers. It comes with a lot of challenges. Um, hmm. I, I don't, I honestly don't know much about uh, directed energy applications there, but it's possible, I suppose. Yeah. Preferably from space, like giant space lasers, just for the cool factor. Mm. Yamato or something? Giant, yeah, just a, space. Yeah. You know, that's. I did once have a, a retired, there was a retired US general when he was pitching. It's a completely civilian application. His idea was to have giant one-ton satellites in space that were enormous solar arrays and then they would collect solar energy and then beam it down via a microwave frequency um no gamma some ridiculously high energy and it, like it's like a, some some really high intensity microwave emitter basically and beam it down to a collection station on earth and I'm like, you do realize you, you're advocating for a giant array of death rays, right? Like, mm. if you turn, if this misses and hits the children's hospital, that's it, right? It's the end, it's the end, end mm. of this thing. He's like, no, no, it'll be fine. I'm like, will it? Mm. I, th- I think I read you can do that, right? As long as, as long as everything lines up, you you could beam energy down. I think that was one of the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then the it sounds like there's there's dual purpose there. You can have like a nice civilian application, energy wherever you want it to be, and you have a hammer of dawn from Gears of War in case things spark up. In case in case things get spicy, you've yeah. got the hammer of dawn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who could yeah. how could this go wrong? Yeah. I mean it, it it worked out for the cog, so I you know, in the end they won, kinda. I mean, and and you know, as I like to quote people, well, it worked in KSP. If it's mm-hmm. if it's okay in COG, I assume it's fine. It's fine for the rest of us. Yeah, KSP is pretty pretty legit, as far as I can tell. In terms of it, it seems pretty real in terms of the the physics of of building rockets and stuff. But I guess that's a question for you. How one to one is it? KSP, it's not too bad. Um, although, I mean, you know, it used it used, it, it uses simplified physics. So so the models mm-hmm. in KSP to some extent represent as much as possible as the developers could get away with simplifications of the physics that drive all of these things. But I'll tell you now that calculating orbital trajectories for anything, you know, with with realistically more than two celestial bodies in it is an absolute pig. So the three-body problem would be you, who is tiny, the planet and the moon or something right and that that's doable and more than that is is get spicy 
And so KSP's got a whole solar system that you can sling yourself around at any speed you want. And it'll do it not, not only in real time, but fast forwarded. So um, what that tells you is it's, it's, it, it's cheating a little bit on the details, which, you know, for a game, it's fine. There's no problem with that at all. Very educational, teaches you a lot about how apogees and perigees and orbital transfers and all those things. And, and that is physically reasonably representative of the, of the way that the universe behaves. But I, ser- I certainly wouldn't actually plan a mission with it, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. You can have a bad day there. Hmm. No, it's it's okay. I, there, there were some questionable things, like right at the beginning, I think you could launch like a big, really round rocket where you could like chain lots of boosters together in a big spiral or something, and that was like the most efficient, most efficient like rocket you could have, which is of course a gross violation of like drag, aerodynamic mm-hmm. drag principles. But you know the way they simplified the physics, it made sense. I think at some point they came back. I re- remember reading something about them improving the air thermodynamics. But um, again, these were, I, can't, I, I never went digging into it. Let's put it that way. Just, That's you know, fair. Enjoyed the explosions, crashed into the moon. Hmm. What? Um, so how fast, just for everyone in, and I forgot to look this up, and I, I don't have a frame of reference for this. How fast is hypersonic? You know, if we're talking about planes or missiles or whatever, how fast is that? It, varies which isn't a great answer typically mm-hmm. it's so hypersonic is, is typically measured in max um that's that's dr mac to all of us who came up with the idea of basically so mac number of one is the speed of sound so if you go over mac one you're now supersonic for that you were subsonic right so everything that's slower than the speed of sound is subsonic when you go over the speed of sound you become supersonic and this is this is relevant because um, think of the speed of sound as the speed at which air in front of you can get out of your own way, right? So if you were in, have you ever been like in like a waist deep pool of water and you start walking forward, right? Yeah. And you see there's like a wave that forms in front of you. If you yeah, look really closely and you see this on boats as well, sometimes it'll actually, the water will go down first. And then there's actually the wave in front of you or the boat, or whatever it is that moves forward. Right. And mm-hmm. the wave is, is essentially pushing water out of the way from in front of you that makes it easier. If you try and run or move in the water faster than that wave, it sprays water everywhere. Like all, mm-hmm. you know, left and right, you know, the, and you says, why when you run in water, it's just a nightmare. Water goes absolutely everywhere, right? Because now you're traveling quicker than that way. You're traveling quicker than the water wants to get out of your way. When you go faster than the speed of sound, you're now traveling faster than the speed of sound, which means you have to shovel. You are just shoving the air. There's no time for it to nicely part out of your way. You just shove it around you there and then. So now you get shock waves. And that's what that is. That's you shoving the air at just forcibly out of your way. Think of it as the difference between you know, trying to get through a crowd by excuse me, pardon me, and you kind of meander through versus just sprinting at it and letting the, you know, the the sheer, sheer momentum and you just shove people out of the way. Um, like, what are they called, the things on the front of trains, the cattle, cattle plow, whatever it is, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just, it's that, right? Yeah. So that's Mac 1. So now you're supersonic. Now, most planes are like supersonic between... Like fighter jets and things will go to maybe Mach 3, 
the top end, right? That's pretty easy. Things can start to get a little hot around then. Aluminium isn't a great building material anymore. Titanium either, really. Um, and so then you've got Mach 3 to 5. That takes you sort of up to the very top of supersonic. Then around 5, 6, you become hypersonic. Now, Mach 1 is about 300 meters a second, so about 1,000 feet a second. So Mach 5 is... Uh, 1,500 meters a second. So what is that times three? Almost 5,000 feet a second. Mm. Uh, or about a meter is about a yard, actually. So I suppose that's an easier conversion. So Mach 10, then, you know, Mac, most hypersonic applications are typically between about Mach 5 and Mach 10, depending on what you're doing and who's doing what. Um, excluding some re-entry stuff, but I always think that's a bit of a cheat because the, the re-entry, the highest Mac numbers for re-entry, which can, can be quite extreme, like in the 30s, tend to be where the atmosphere is really thin. And so the extent to which it really matters is questionable. Um, but nonetheless, it is Mac 30. But yeah, so in the atmosphere, when you're trying to fly some hypersonic vehicle, Mac 5 to Mac 10, which is about um, 1,500 meters a second through to about 3,000 meters a second. Uh, and you'll have to excuse me for not knowing what that is in imperial units or, or miles. Well, actually, uh, what is it sounds about meter, meters? Meters the same as a yard. Yeah, meters is the same as a yard. So, yeah, it's three and three. So it's easy to calculate out everything people are hearing when you see like 300 meters. Just imagine a football field and then just uh, apply that. Go, yeah. yeah. So, what is that? Yeah. So, 3,000 yards a second is that's 10, uh, 10 football fields every second. Is that right? The football field is 300 yards. It feels right. Or it's I fast. Think, um, or about four to four. Mac five is four thousand miles an hour, and Mac ten is about eight thousand miles an hour. Mm. I had to guess R- roughly, roughly. Um, and it, and it it's difficult. The reason you do it in Mac numbers is because as you go up and down in the atmosphere, the speed of sound changes because temperature changes. From the ground, it's actually a little bit higher. These vehicles tend to fly much higher to avoid melting, that pesky, pesky thing. And uh, so the speed sounds a little lower up there. So it's kind of variable. It, it's uh, the heat that is the thing that regulates it or the atoms that are in the way that causes heat? Because uh, I would think that- Directly linked. Well, yeah, I was just thinking like, which, which comes first, like the, the chicken or the egg? The- Friction so, is the killer. Well, I mean- yeah. So then it's the- so the higher you go, the less molecules there are, so you can go through it with less stuff being built up and bombarding you, causing friction. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like if you were if you were lower and it was hotter, I guess you would still if it, the heat determines how many molecules are running around. So I guess it wouldn't matter. I was just thinking like weird uh, scenarios where you could have like a really cold zone that's really low in in the ground to the ground, or something really hot that's really uh, low or whatever. And like, what would it do to the how fast you could go? Um, but. Uh, so that's why I was asking that question. Is like, which which comes first? Is it the temperature that regulates how fast you can go, or is it the number of molecules which then causes the temperature difference? Maybe this is like a dumb thing to ask, but that's what I was wondering in my head. Which, so, which one of those comes? Yeah, which so one? They're linked. So so yeah, you know the debt. So one is the, the number of molecules of the density, right? And the temperature. Yeah. Different. So they're linked. So a if I have two flows at the same temperature, but one of them has a lower density, that's that's e, that won't be as hot. And if mm. I had two flows of the same density and one of them is a lower temperature, that won't be 
that'll be less melty. And the best one is a low density, low temperature, mm-hmm. which is what you get at altitude, right? As you go up, temperature and density come down. Yeah. Now, I was wondering because I was recently reading about the, the moon and the temperature gradients that swing. Like it can go from like pretty cold to over 200 degrees where Apollo 11, I believe, was, was landing. It was like 200 degrees Fahrenheit, which is like 90 something centigrade or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I was just wondering, and they don't, they don't have that much of an atmosphere. So I was curious, like how you'd apply this in other areas. But the one, one question I have for applying it in Earth, to earth is why would you want to go that fast? Like what purpose is doing that process over something like what Elon Musk has proposed with his uh, SpaceX stuff, where you just go up, you, you skip a lot of it by going up out of the atmosphere and then you move where you want sure. it to go. And then you come back down. It seems like it'd be less risky compared to going hypersonic in atmosphere with all these other, like, you know, turbulence type things coming into it. Um, so I suppose the first thing to give some context to, right, is if you, the, if you, if you want to get to orbit, which is kind of what you're saying, this presumes, right? I want to be orbital. Well, well the, I, uh, getting from point A to point B is the purpose. It's just what, what is the... Well, the fastest the, way to go from point A to point B is always a straight line. Yeah. The problem is a straight line through the atmosphere at high velocity is very melting. Yeah. And so we, we lack the technology to do that. So instead, for the longest time, the fastest way was a, was a rocket ride up and then yeah. travel basically suborbitally through space and then pop back down where you want to be. But that is a very roundabout way to avoid, a, you know, it's, you actually end up traveling a very long way to, a, to avoid a very small amount of atmosphere just because it's so problematic. So if you can yeah. fly fast enough, it is quicker, much quicker to do that. Um, but it's really melty, which mm-hmm. makes it yeah, it sounds sad. dangerous. Um, yeah, so far, I mean, hey, maybe one day we'll have technology that it'll be a safe set travel. I don't know, but right now, yeah, the engines tend to explode. Tiny variations, cracks, or chips on any kind of thermal protection immediately melt the vehicle, um, and we don't really understand what we're doing. So. <laughs> no, but- when you go supersonic, doesn't it uh, also like can cause damage to things around you? So that if you go from one civilian sector to another civilian sector, you might destroy things as you just go hypersonic. There's yeah. like 50 of these planes going all over the place. Yeah, that is that is a problem. And, and NASA has a whole piece on this where they're trying. There's a there's a, a low boom supersonic vehicle they were interested in building to see if you could fly supersonic vehicles over civilian areas without at the very least deafening everyone but yeah i mean if you fly if you go supersonically close enough to infrastructure it will do things like at least rattle if not break windows it disturbs wildlife it annoys people it damages hearing um you know the the shockwave that comes off of a vehicle as it goes past you, it might as well be the same as an explosion. Effectively, as far as mm-hmm. you're concerned, that pressure wave when it hits you is very high. Um, and that, that will cause damage. Um, and so, yeah, it's a re- that's a real concern. And, and to what extent you'll ever really see people fly hypersonically over populated areas is unclear to me. Um, you would realistically fly to a high enough altitude you would try to climb like concord did this right right concord yeah. which was a supersonic plane but it's had the same noise problems it would take off climb as quickly as it could to some altitude um 
where it couldn't could be heard less would fly away from anyone subsonically and then it would accelerate up to supersonic speeds fly over the ocean where all you're going to do is make the fish sad and then slow down again once you got over land so it did concord did a lot of like you know take off from somewhere and fly over a bunch of ocean for 10 hours to get somewhere really quick kind of or well, mm-hmm. concord i suppose three hours but um and you would likely see the same with civilian aircraft right you would need to take them off from somewhere coastal they would they will take time to get to altitude because they they're not very efficient flying subsonically right it's a very different it's a very different design right it's like a boat doesn't look like an airplane because it's different physics these things don't look like normal planes so they're very inefficient when they're not traveling at their cruise speed so you'd have to take them off climb and then fly um then you know you'd hope that you were going to somewhere like Australia where you could turn a 16 hour, 18 hour flight into a two, three hour flight. And that would be worth it, right? But yeah. um the real, I mean, the real application for hypersonic flight as I see it, you know, um is uh, single stage to orbit vehicles. So space planes, basically planes that will fly you to space. Um that's why you would be interested in being able to fly like that, because then you can everyone can just hop on a plane and go to orbit for less than a thousand bucks. There's there's absolutely zero reason why going to space should cost me any more than it should to go to England. Yeah. Or Mexico or Canada or anywhere else. Um, yeah. I, I think the, it should me less. Hmm. Well, uh, the, the, I remember this is like Elon numbers, right? But the, I remember one of his talks where, where he was saying that with, uh, one of his rockets, you could get anywhere on the planet within 30 minutes. So even though it is roundabout, it does seem like if you're going from point A to point B on the planet and you want to go there fast, if you have the two options, it sounds like the rocket that's more ballistic would make more sense than going hypersonic through the atmosphere. Because you, you have the speed up and speed down problem, kind of like light speed. When you go from like Earth to Alpha, Alpha Centauri, a, majority, like a huge component of your time is speeding up and, and slowing down. So if you could just... I guess that's a poor analogy, but at the same time, it sounds like even though Bliskets is like like a roundabout way to get there, it's the most efficient way to get there, and it, it takes less time. If you were just like Earth to Earth travel, I mean, if you want, if you're doing it on pure time, and you want to travel something like half the distance of this planet, sure, a rocket is arguably the fastest way. It is absolutely. I I will. You can look this up. It's called ISP. It is a measure of how efficient an engine is. A rocket engine is the most inefficient way humanly known as any kind of real engine to generate any kind of force. It is the least efficient engine you will ever use. Fundamentally, physically, because of the way it functions, it has the the ISP of a rocket's generously, generously for a hydrogen rocket is maybe four hundred. If you want to get nuclear about it, it goes up, but it ain't great. If you compare compare that to the ISP of any other engine, I mean, like a you know a a, a, a transatlantic jet engine is orders of magnitude. Its ISP is orders of magnitude higher than a rocket engine. Mm. Um, 
but it, but a rocket engine is faster. That's why we use them, right? I mean, they are very, very good at, at providing enormous amounts of thrust to speed things up and move them around. And that's good. I mean, if you do need, if you really need to be somewhere in a massive hurry and cost is not an option, or cost is so cost is not a concern, which it really is when I don't know delivering ICBMs. Yeah, you can rocket it, but to what extent you'd want to put a human through that? I don't know. The hmm. I mean, the, the G profile. You thought turbulence was bad, you know? Like the G profile on a rocket is substantial. Hmm. Um, and and so you're you know lots of other considerations come in when people are suddenly involved, and again if you thought, if, you know there are videos of the the the, the, the um, starship taking off right and windows are shaking, yeah hundreds of miles, miles tens of miles wherever it was a long way away they just dug a hole too, right like I really dug a big old hole in the floor right. Where are you, same problem with the hypers, where are you launching this from? Where are you landing it? Because that isn't where people are. So yeah, I can fly a rocket there, but I can't land in it. Hmm. Well, I think I it's going to be like a barge system. Out. Yeah, I could, maybe I jump out or something. I, I don't know. But it's just, it's so expensive to fly a rocket. The, the problem isn't, okay, do you know how much it costs to launch a used Let's let's follow this. Let's follow this through. So let's say I get in a Falcon Nine. Sure. Right. I think the the space spaceship is supposed to be even more efficient cost per kilogram than Falcon Nine, which is kind of interesting. Sure, but it's the like Falcon it's like nine is actually flown. So yes. and yeah, we so can use that still, for because it's it's good math. And I also don't know its number. I don't know the Starship numbers off the top of my head. And I and I do agree their orders of magnitude lower, but still, right. So, um, and ho- hopefully they manage. I really hope they do. I really hope they yeah. do. Right? I, okay, I, so Falcon 9. All, but a Falcon 9, do you know what it costs for a Falcon 9 flight? It's like 40 million. Give it to eight, yeah. Do you know what it's cargo? To ISS. To ISS, right? Uh, Is it 40, I, I think it's 40 million to ISS and back, right? With like four to six passengers. It's, it's basically, probably, basically 50 million a launch and what changes is the cargo. So mm. if you go, just go to, if you go to like 200 kilometers of Leo, your cargo goes up. If you want to go to the ISS, I think that's around 300. Cargo comes down, right? Because as you put, take mass, add, you add mass in or you take fuel out, whatever you do, right? So, yeah. but it, it's about 50 million all in. And it's cargo capacity. Um, Off the top of my head, what? 10 tons? 20 tons? Something like that. The magic of Google. Yeah, I'll let you look that up. Right? So, uh, uh, cargo capacity. Yeah, I, I have a new setup so I can Google things so that we don't nice. have to. It's it's fifty five thousand pounds, so it's like it's like twenty five thousand tons, I think. Twenty twenty tons. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I did the math um, wrong. So there you go. Right. So that I mean, and that's the. Cheapest. And it's really isn't that much. Yeah. To my knowledge, for, for a used. Falcon 9, that is the cheapest cargo to space it's currently good. Barring Starship, but that blew up, right? So, and look, hey, they're going to do it. I, I believe they're going to do it. It's just a matter of time. They got they got some bugs to fix, clearly, but that, I think they'll get there. I'm not I'm not really concerned. Um, yeah. Nothing so, else can... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So do you know what it costs to build an A380? I don't know what an A380 is. An, so an A380 would... is the largest transatlantic 
civilian passenger plane. So full double-decker transatlantics by Airbus. The most expensive civilian plane that within uh, yeah, transit. I imagine it's like several million to like 20 million. The big ones? Like a 747? The most, yeah, it's basically the most expensive transatlantic aircraft you can buy, right? If you're an, if you're an airline, if you're like uh, American Airlines or sure. like Virgin Atlantic or whoever, and you're buying aircraft, it's the most expensive one you'll ever buy. And and the, the um, Falcon 9, again, 40, 50 million a launch, right? How much for the, how much are you betting for the A380? Or a seven four seven or whatever, whatever. For the cost of the vehicle, or for me to go from point A to point B with a ticket. The cost of the whole vehicle, which is which will be more expensive, not a trench. Yeah. The cost of the whole vehicle. I would assume it's less than fifty million. It's three hundred and sixty million dollars. Okay, never mind. And that doesn't include the cost of the engines because most airlines don't buy the engines; they're so expensive and complicated. Um, they rent them. That, that aircraft has four. Each one of those engines is about 10 million each, as I recall. So that's another four. So it's about 400 million all in for that, for that vehicle to be built. Now, I can get on that aircraft and I can fly to the UK, which is at 10,000 miles return off the top of my head, um, there and back. I can do that for about $1,000 which is a more expensive vehicle and a longer distance because space is only 200 miles up. Yeah. Well, technically it's 100 miles up, but good luck staying in orbit there, right? But but if you actually, a sustainable orbit, it's probably 200 or so miles away, a bit more. It's not They far. can drive there in like three to four hours. If a car could drive away. up, yeah, no, yeah. You're, you're entirely right. I mean, I live in Texas, right? That's not even a far, people will go that far for brunch. Yeah. Right? But you can't. The only way there is a rocket, and that's that's why we use them. They are painfully inefficient, but nonetheless, the only way to do that. Is there? I'm sorry. I, I suspect that you're going with a, a point. I, I, are you? Are you? I don't want to interrupt. Are you going somewhere? The, uh, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm excited. The the point. What's the difference then? Right? Why? Why is? Because also most of that plane, half of that plane ticket, a five thousand dollar plane ticket, half of it is tax, and then the, the remaining chunk of it is fuel. Like a good another of the thousand dollars, like I said, you know, five hundred dollars tax, about another three four hundred dollars fuel. God knows what they charged me for the coffee, right? Um, I did the math once. The cost per ticket of that aircraft is about twenty bucks. Hmm. Right. And the reason for that is that that A380 or that airliner will fly on average 36,000 times. Right. A rocket is very unlikely to fly that number of times ever. I'll give it a SpaceX. They've done a really good job taking a vehicle that only ever flown once and getting it up into the tens of flights. And they don't seem to have had any problems really doing that. There have been very few explosions, which is impressive. Um, but the idea that you, you know, they're in the tens at some point, I, I think they'll break the hundreds, they'll get into the hundreds. You know, I, I, I am hopefully skeptical they'll break the thousands, but I wonder if they really will just because of the nature of the way those engines work. 
a rocket engine is so painfully inefficient, you basically have to redline it, right? That's how, that's how you get to orbit, is you just jam the rocket engine into max and you pray it doesn't explode, right? It's yeah. like driving everywhere in first gear at 7,000 RPM. That's what a rocket engine represents, right? They're so inefficient that the only way to get anywhere with them is to stage them. No other vehicle do you get in where you drop bits of it along the way, right? If you were in the plane, the captain said, well, it came over the intercom. Right then, passengers were halfway through the fuel, so we're just going to be dropping the, you know, half ends of the wings into the ocean now because we don't need them anymore. No, you don't do that. You take it all the way to the next place. You land and you fill it back up. You, Even though I, as the plane drains fuel out of the wings, I don't dump the wings into the ocean or any other part of the aircraft for that matter. The air hostesses don't kick the empty copy containers out the window, right? Because we're done with them now and it's extra mass we don't need. But on a rocket, you do that. Right as you burn through the the, first, the main stage, you kick it off. Right, Elon relands them so he can reuse them again. Before the cost was astronomical because you threw the whole thing in the ocean. And that was that. Um, going to space could easily be cheaper than going to another country in terms of the distance traveled. The problem is the cost of the vehicle and how many times it flies. If you can get a rocket to fly 36,000 times on a single rocket with very little maintenance, as they do with aircraft today, it lands, you refuel, it takes off, which is credibly what Musk is, is aiming for, SpaceX at least. Musk is too busy, of course, um, running Twitter, but at least right now. But assuming they put it off, and I, I, I think they, you know, they'll, they'll get it flying, but to what extent that vehicle will fly 35,000 times to me is very questionable. That's fair. It won't, but I see absolutely no proof that it will. It might. Physics might do that for you, right? But you're in uncharted waters now. The most anyone has launched the same rocket is tens of times, and you're telling me that you're going to do it. You're going to do a hundred times better than that. That's like saying, "What's the what's the world record on height jumped by a human?" And you're like, "It's you know whatever it is, two meters, four meters, whatever, right?" And you say, "Great, I'm going to do four hundred. And you're like, "Well, maybe." Maybe, but some things just won't go much further. So I and and SpaceX that haven't hit a wall yet, as far or no one has, as far as I'm aware, on how many times you can reuse a rocket engine. But um, there is presumably a point of diminishing returns, as there is with all technologies, right? Mm -hmm. a, a, an internal combustion engine in a car will will always struggle to get an engine over about 200 miles an hour. That's why the all the land speed records are done with jet engine powered cars, but the engine just can't do it. Yeah. And so somewhere in there is the number of times you can launch a rocket engine before it just starts exploding and that that's going to be really hard to get any further. And so you can chase that to land's end or you can do the hard work of figuring out the physics to have a space plane right? because a plane takes off horizontally. It's a much more efficient way of generating lift. And then if you look at something like reaction engines, um, who have the Sabre engine, who are building a single stage. So a single, you know, for, I suppose for those that, are, that don't know, a single stage to orbit vehicle is basically the space shuttle that takes off from a runway as well, right? It's it's a plane. It looks like a plane, takes off from a runway, goes to space, comes but down, lands in a runway, right? That's a mm -hmm. single stage vehicle. You don't drop any of it into the ocean on the way. Not even a little bit. It's not even the crisp packets. Keep everything, right? The coffee cups, the whole thing, the K cups, the going and recycling, 
We're environmentally responsible now, right? So if you have that vehicle and if you can have, which flies more efficiently, right? This is the deal. Plane, if you think of the plane, right? It generates lift with its wings. It uses the engines to pull the plane forward. That's what the engines do. They only pull the plane forward, really. The wings generate all the lift. It is a much more efficient way of generating lift than simply pointing an engine at the floor. Mm -hmm. And you know this because a standard transatlantic jet cannot hover. If you put that to max, if you put the engines to max thrust, you can't hover the, the plane. It just falls to the floor. The engines cannot put enough thrust out to lift the plane off directly. You have to go sideways and use the wing. It's considerably more efficient. And so that's what a space plane offers is much higher efficiency. And then with that efficiency comes the luxury of keeping all the stuff that you only needed at one point, right? You don't have to throw it out the window. And then because it's more efficient, the engine gets red light, isn't running as hot, isn't as hard. And then that enables you then to fly this vehicle a much larger number of times, which is kind of where like Virgin were going sort of, right? With that, like with the little plane drop thing that kind of rocked yeah. it up. That's the direction they were going in. Um, and there's a company called yeah Skylon with Sabre Engines. They're kind of trying to do that too. And um, as other com hypersonic companies come up, you know, and, and have these solutions, you're going to see, and you're starting to see a lot of crossover between companies that were alternative launch companies becoming hypersonic companies and vice versa, because there's a, they kind of live in a similar space. And that that's why I care, right? All of this is to say it's a matter of cost. Right, you can go to space today. Um, it'll cost you about if you can if you can get a ticket. It's a it's about it's somewhere between ten and a hundred million um, for an all-in ticket to space. But you know what? The the for me or you to have the well, I don't know about you, but certainly for me to have the ability to go to space, right? It probably needs to be under ten thousand dollars a go if I ever even yeah. consider the idea. Right. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Um, and so that's that to me is what's relevant about space planes. That's to that that is really the whole equation. That's what SpaceX are trying to do, right? They're trying to reuse the vehicle because an airplane costs more, flies further than a rocket, right? And carries more people and is still somehow cheaper. Mm. And the reason for that is the number of times it flies. Yeah, that makes sense. For the for the Concorde, how many times could it fly? Like, what was the cost per ticket for that one? Yeah, I I don't know actually. I haven't done the math on that. It all it all comes down to so the number of flights an aircraft make. I interestingly, actually, I think, or if you're nerdy like I am, but what limits you is um, have you ever bent a spoon backwards and forwards a bunch of times until it breaks? Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't know about you or any of your listeners. I'm not strong enough to just rip a rip a spoon apart, but I can do the bendy thing until it snaps. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a method of failure in metals that's called fatigue. Basically, if you keep bending them a bunch, each time you bend it, it cracks and breaks a little more, cracks a little breaks more until eventually it just breaks. Right. It's a cyclic failure from loading over and over, loading it up and unloading it, loading it up and unloading it over and over and over again. So each time the plane flies, the cabin gets pressurized. And that actually stresses the whole airframe. Um, and so that's the limiter 
on how many times an aircraft can fly, assuming you have fairly um, good safety protocols, because you can fly it more 35, 36,000 times, then you have to start scanning the whole thing a whole bunch um, and like doing like inspections for cracks and all kinds of other things. Most airlines at that point just abandon the plane because the cost of the maintenance outweighs buying a new one. But I don't know what the, I don't know what it was for the Concorde because it got hotter, a lot hotter. They, in fact, they made a design choice. They intentionally limited the speed of the vehicle so they could make the whole thing out of aluminium. I think it was a Mac 1.8 for the Concorde. It could have gotten up to about 2.2, but at that point you would have been over the working temperature of aluminium. And so they would have had to go on to titanium, which would push the prices up a bunch and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That has come. That's production um, value. It is production value. Yeah. Well, sometimes people are really, you know, oh no, my cat's in the frame. It's like, no, people are going to like it. Whoever <laughs> can t- first person to timestamp this in the show notes or whatever, I'll, I'll take, I'll, I'll pin you to the top. I think that's, that yeah. stuff's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of thought that avenues I want to go down uh, just talking about space plans. I'm, I was watching a Tim Dodd episode about aerospikes. I'm curious yeah. about, uh, how would you build? Well, okay. So there's aerospikes. There's the fact that I don't think any space plane currently like Virgin Galactic, I think Virgin Galactic might be the only one I can think of that is actually has brought people to space. Uh, but like even then, they didn't really go to space. When I think of space, I think of like where the ISS is, where it just kind of sits there, and you can like that's where I think of that's why I think of. They did technically well. Oh God! All right. Well, that was the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So they went to Imperial space. They didn't go to metric space <laughs> because the American armed forces. I think I think they say space starts above like 80 miles or something. And then like the international community says it's at like 100 kilometers or something. And there's like some slight difference or whatever. And like Bezos went to metric space, which is slightly further. And it was, yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah, but neither of them, when I think of like there's space and there's space. So like from, in my opinion, if you're going to go up there, I think you should have the capacity to do stuff while you're there or else you're just kind of, like going out and seeing whales and coming back, which is cool. Like you, you can see some whales. I love whales. I love space. But I feel like if you can get up to the point where you can see, get to like space hotels or these other uh, constructs that we can build in space, like that is where it starts getting interesting because then you can build things, you can bring people up there. It's like kind of having like oil rigs and like going to an oil rig, like taking a boat to an oil rig versus just like going out and like seeing a whale and going home. So that's why I felt like for uh, Virgin Galactic and uh, the the uh, Jeff Bezos phallic uh, ship, the um they it felt like they just they just kind of like went just enough to like count it but uh it didn't feel like real space in the sense that like what spacex can do which is get to the iss and do all these other things so um i'm curious you know how would you build a space plane to do if, if we're if we're taking that as the metric as the bare minimum like you can go up to space and actually work and use this as like a bus to get to these things and like use it as some type of thing to like replace spacex as as the the workhorse to do uh, low earth orbit what how would we build that like is there anyone doing that and uh you personally if we i give you you know uh, elon musk and jeff bezos are now your funders how would you build such a thing and could you i'll wait on the space aerospace because we probably have to def- define that for people but uh how would you do it um the how would i have orbital fabrication capabilities is that the question or how to t- how to make a space plane able to go to low Earth orbit and move around kind of like what SpaceX can do? 
okay. to make it comparable and take take so, it over and then it be the the plane of low earth orbit so it it and this is going to sound very familiar because it's basically the current nasa plan so i'd have a moon base because the moon is a giant lump of materials notionally almost identical to what we have on earth assuming you can mine it out that's already in orbit of the planet with no atmosphere where i can then basically build ridiculously sized rockets that do not suffer from drag and uh, with a much lower gravity well that i can fling out into the rest of the solar system right so my base is on the moon that's where i'm going to build all my stuff that's where i'm going to go everywhere so all i need to do is get people and any raw materials or equipment I need to the moon. So then I have a space plane. It's going to take off and it's not going to go to real space, as, as you're calling it, right? It's not going to be a fully, it probably never goes into a full orbital. Hmm. It, it is always a, it's always a hop, right? Okay. It's more, it's bigger than the, the SpaceX hop or ever else, right? You've built, instead of trying to build one Goliath Saturn V that had to fly through the atmosphere and get into orbit and get to the moon and land on the moon and take off, you know, like that vehicle was a beast in terms of everything it had to do and come back and learn the, you know, the st- vehicles stacked on vehicles, stacked on vehicles, stacked on vehicles, right? Um, instead, I would have one vehicle who that is designed to take you from low Earth to, to low Earth orbit. So, or in fact, to a suborbital low Earth apogee, right? So whatever that is, 150, say. So it flies up. You fly up to, you know, escape velocity in the atmosphere would be ideal if you could manage the heat loading. Glide out on just the sheer amount of speed you've amassed, flying really fast in the atmosphere. Come pop up. You get met by some tug, right, or some vehicle that spends its whole time in orbit, and its only job is to come and get you. I docks to me. I transfer it the fuel it needs to go back to where it was and the passengers and cargo it's going to take. That drops back down. You know, the vehicle goes back up into orbit. Maybe it also does my lunar transfer orbit and back. Maybe there's another one or there's some space station there. I don't know, right? But the point would be you... We as humans, imagine you lived by the river. There goes my son again. Um, we'll see if he comes out. Imagine you lived by the river of a you know a tiny little river, barely wide enough for a canoe, right? And you wanted to cross the ocean. You can either try and engineer the living hell out of a canoe so that you can sail it down a tiny river which then becomes a massive river, which then becomes an ocean to try and cross that and suffer all the way through for something that is too big for the tiny rivers and too small for the ocean. Or you can sail the canoe to the mouth of the ocean, build a dry dock, build an ocean faring vehicle, get in that ocean faring vehicle, sail over to another port and the Right. And then when you're there, you get off. You leave the ocean varying vehicle in the ocean. You don't sail super containers up tiny rivers, just as I don't try and sail dinghies across enormous oceans. You need vehicles that are fit for purpose. The space plane is only good for getting you off of the floor and just to about more or less the right height and right speed 
be picked up by something else. That's what you want to do. And then you want a vehicle that just lives in orbit the whole time. And the only thing it does is just move people around there. That's its only mm-hmm. job. And so that you you need infrastructure. And, and this is what frustrates me about people who are in such a rush, rush to get to Mars. And don't get me wrong. I really want to go. Right? I want to go to another. I want to see humans step foot on another planet. I Mars is a great one. There are other candidates too. Europa would be interesting. You know. Yeah, I'm a fan of Titan. Europe is cool too. Yeah. But there, there, I mean, there are lots of candidates you might go to when looking for life, which is really what we're saying care about. More than anything, man, we want to find some life. Wouldn't that be existentially terrifying? But the point being that if you're in such a rush that you're not willing to build the infrastructure in behind you that you need to get somewhere, like sustainably, right? Then it it's really this, it's kind of a it's a glory mission. It's a YOLO, mm. right? Yeet and transfer. <laughs> you just you you're in such a rush, you know, you're just like, I've you've heard of this new land and you're not interested in everyone going. You just want to go. Um and it almost seems selfish. And and to me, the foundation we need to build as a species for ourselves. Right, so that our children and our children's children and everyone else can thrive as you know with humanity as a spacefaring species is we need a dry dog for the rest of our solar system right and that's the moon in this analogy the moon is our dry dog to the solar system it is a it is a it's not too far from earth so if everything explodes you know if the martian were on the moon man that, that movie would not have been as intimidating like oh god got him it's just blown up. How long before you're here? You're about, about two weeks, Matt. All right. Uh, should I grow some? Nah, don't, don't bother about the potatoes. Honestly, mm. don't eat at all. Just, you know, drink your own piss. You'll be fine. <laughs> you go pick them up. What's the problem? Yeah. It's, a, it's a good spot to test. Yeah. Party yeah. I had a laser pen on the moon. I could Morse code from it. You could see it from the planet with the right <laughs> or the right satellite. It's just not that, you know, it's 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 actually fairly safe. I know it's some senses a little bit, I don't know, boring is the right word, but it certainly isn't as romantic um, or as, as nice as going to Mars, but it's far more practical, right? Build the infrastructure in that we need to go, build, figure out the technology that we need to get there, and let's go. Um, yeah. that, that, to me, as someone involved with both in hypersonics and in um, rocketry, right? That's what that's the gap that hypersonics fills. Yes, you could use it to fly somewhere. It has weapons applications, which um, you know I'm less interested in. But uh, the piece that really shines for me is as this technology that enables me or you to go to space for a thousand dollars. Right. That yeah. that's that's what it means. It's it's it is the hypersonics. It stands to potentially be the modern airliner of space. Hmm. I could see the, I see the potential of NASA building out the, that structure, and then other companies like uh, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, tying into it. I see that as a very sustainable way to to do it. The unfortunate thing is that we just really haven't seen a lot of development over the last fifty years outside of the ISS. So we've been kind of like we 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 did a giant jump, from my point of view, and uh, then we been kind of just like working out the kinks on the shores and it. I see your your way of doing it as a really smart way for the government to support the the structure of it, while other companies can keep innovating, like like Elon and and Co are doing. 
I mean, so so one, you're entirely right, yes. And and you know, I mean, SpaceX came along at the round, right time. You know, NASA really wanted a private company to start building rockets. It was something you know, it was, and and the, the US government doesn't want to be in the business of building its own rockets, right? It wants to just buy them from the cheapest provider, it wants competition, good old-fashioned capitalism, right? That's they NASA doesn't want to, and NASA has to be clear, NASA has never built its own rockets, right? It might have designed them, it outsources construction. For the largest part, right? It, it it an organization now referred to as ULA, right? Is is the organization that has built and launched every single rocket for NASA, as, as far as I'm aware, except maybe for some of the really early ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the first thing to sort of recognize there. But I, to jump back a bit though, you said you know you felt like we'd really stalled on our progress to space, right? And I and I and I I think. What's very, it's it's very important to recognize that stool was entirely intentional. And because, you know, here's an example. Who put the first satellite in space? The Russians, the Soviets. First, yeah. First man? Soviets. Woman. I think Soviets. Yeah, it was the Soviets. Yeah, who put the... First, what could could arguably be called a lab in space. A Skylab before the Russian one? The Russian I think, I think Skylab. I think the Russian I think it's... the smaller one. Although yeah, Skylab wasn't bad actually. That was that was big. That was that was quite big. Yeah. You could do a lot with it. First animal in space. Uh I think it's Russians and it's really sad. Yeah, it is sad. We'll skip past that as someone who has pets. First signal from space. Signal from space, like they yeah. sending something back. Yeah, they weren't doing that the whole time. Yeah, well, it's Sputnik, right? It's the Russians. The yeah. Russians, the Russians yeah, okay. were almost all of the immediate firsts, right? Sure. And and who won the space race? Us, the Americans, right? Doesn't that seem a bit strange? And I, I, I mean, one history is written by the winners, so hey. But two, also, I, I would agree that America won the space race. And the reason for that, the reason that Russia could have all of these firsts and still lose the space race is that the space race is an arms race. And the way you win an arms race is not by being the first one there, but by being the last one standing. America won the space race because it put people on the moon, which basically said, I can put nukes on the moon. And so it sort of invalidated the concept of mutually assured destruction in that there was some place that the Russians couldn't touch. Right. That's kind of the kind of the idea. And the sheer cost of that spending of of the space program in both America and Russia, but obviously for Russia, was a really big problem. And it and it's contributed as you know to being no small part of the collapse. Of, of the Soviet Union, right? It was the, just the rampant spending they had to produce to meet the US. And so when the Soviet Union fell, <clears throat> everyone's kind of looking around in the dust. America is at that point the one surviving superpower. And everyone's like, man, space is a really expensive theater of war. And this was about the same time that cyber warfare was really ramping up too. You know what I mean? And man, the problem with cyber warfare is you could do it with a bunch of teenagers in their bedrooms. You know what I mean? Like 
Cyborg is this really asymmetric form of warfare. It's popping up in all these weird places. It was an absolute pain. And so everyone agrees then that NASA is going to be a very transparent organization that lets, you know, lets other governments and things come and inspect everything. It gives all its data out for free. Other, other countries can pay into it to be part of it and to run their own missions and send their own astronauts. But basically, space as a domain of war gets closed. Everyone agrees it's just too expensive. Let's not bother, right? And this is why, for the longest time, no matter how bad U.S.-Russia relations got, they would still launch each other's astronauts because neither country wanted space to become an active theater of war. And so we had the ISS and everything on the ISS was civilian and you couldn't do space weapons. You couldn't do all these things. That was the whole point, right? All the way through the 90s, why everyone was paying for this. So then along comes China. And China's like, hey, I want to come play in the ISS, right? With everyone else. And we say, yeah, that's fine. But all your astronauts appear to be out of your military, and you have to send civilian astronauts. And you have the organizations have to be vettable. We have to see everything they do. China's like, no, we're not doing that. So we're like, fine, you can't complain. China's like, fine, then I'll build my own space station. And everyone kind of laughed, right? Um, so it, like, you know, it didn't. Go, the first space station didn't go very well. First rocket launches didn't go very well, but then they figured it out. And the first space station didn't go very well, but then they figured it out. Um, and now no one's laughing. Right? China is a very space-capable nation. They sent you know, some of the most recent missions to the moon. They found water, all these kinds of things. Um, and so when you'll notice there's a very stri- tight string of events between China announcing it's going to put a moon base the Space Force being announced, which really you have to perceive as America saying space is now an active domain of war. We are actively researching funding war in space and weapons for space, right? That's that piece. And then basically funding falling apart for the ISS and NASA declaring it's going to deorbit the station, right? Those three things all happened in a surprisingly short period of time, along with a bunch of European countries suddenly realizing what they really needed was orbital launch capability, right? Independent of America or uh, Russia. And the reason for that is, as I said, it was so expensive, everyone said, let's just not do it. And they, they didn't. It was purposefully slow. It was purposefully painful because it's expensive as hell. To, to build that capability out. And all of it has, has weapons and war implications, right? Um, so they just everyone said, let's just not worry about it. Let's worry about something else, whatever's going on at the moment. But now with China, and you're seeing this with nuclear weapons as well, right? You're seeing nuclear weapons treaties with Russia, because America and Russia entered into agreements where they wouldn't weaponize space and they would reduce the number of nukes they had and all these other things. China showed up. It was ne- it never signed those contracts. It never just didn't sign those treaties. It wasn't beholden to them. So America and Russia have their high hands tied, right? Intentionally, and China's doing whatever it wants. And they're, they're looking at this and they're thinking, well, we we can't let China just run away with space weapons and nuclear technology and leave us behind. Um, and so you know, both of them basically reneged on those deals to 
to go and pursue more, you know, continuation of nuclear weapons and the continuation of space as a theater of war. And that's what we're you know, seeing today. And that's kind of what China is the rise of the third superpower really did to the planet and the world and the geopolitics. And that's, and that's where, and that's why there's this sudden explosion in capability. It, it, you know, it, we intentionally slowed down the expansion. We kept it civilian because it was, you know, cheap. And we, we limited, we limited any technology that had weapons applications intentionally. We didn't want to go down those roads. So that's why, right. Um, And China has disrupted all of that for better or worse. Um, you know, they're doing their own thing and we're going to see how that, how that works out. Yeah. I think the, someone has called it the platinum highway for how America wants to develop space. There's the, there's a Silk Road, the new Silk Road or the Belt and Road Initiative, something in China. Yeah. And so often when people say, well, what's America doing? They say, well, if we develop space, it'll be our platinum highway where we can mine and do all these things in space and we can explore that way while China kind of starts mopping up with these third and second world countries. Yeah. um, We'll see. I think combined, the Western world certainly has an enormous capability um, to do these things, fund these missions. What I'm very interested in is what ends up being internationally, like who owns an orbital, you know, band around the earth, right? So like Starlink has gone up into a certain orbital band right around Mm -hmm. the planet. Um, I think I read something that said of something like 14,000 available spots that you think you can safely put satellites in without crashing into each other. SpaceX is planning to take 11,000 of those, which means no one else can realistically have a satellite swarm in that band anymore. So you have to go higher, which is harder and more expensive and yada, yada. So, or the moon, right? Like if you land on the moon and you put a flag on it, do you get to say you own it? Because there's there's no law. there's, There's no internationally recognized anything that says you can't. Um, or what if, what if there's only water on the North and South poles of the moon and one country puts bases on both and declares an exclusion zone around that base. That's the size of the poles and says that all this water is ours. Our exclusion zone extends beyond all the water. All the water is ours. If you come near us, we'll shoot you. What do you do about that? There's no precedent. There's no law for it, right? Uh, The closest thing you would have is the laws that kind of govern the way Antarctica is is governed. Mm-hmm. Um, but is even China then, part of that? Um, I don't know, but it is international. Yeah. It is at least an international. It's internationally. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand your point. I, I was just curious if there was one example of China playing nice with other people. It's like, oh, if they're part of Antarctica, maybe that could be the template for space. But it seems like it's everyone but China that um, gets along when it comes to space stuff. Well, I mean, plenty of countries have disagreements. You know, I think the yeah. Chinese are just looking at what the Western world did, and they're looking to say, well, we want to do that as well. Like, why why do all of you get to play geopolitics and then say, I can't do what I want, right? That's their... Like, America did something not dissimilar to what China's doing in the South China Sea in, in um, 
the Gulf in terms of like its rights and the zones and all this sort of, and no one did anything because they were America. Everyone you could go and argue against was an allied nation to it. So what are you going to do? But so I think the Chinese are just trying to, you know, they're a bit late to the game on on imperialism. Um, and I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying imperialism is good. But I'm just there. I think they're just looking at it saying, why don't, you know, why don't we get to do what we want? You all got to do what you want. Why can't I do that as well? Right. Yeah. Is imperialism still a thing? I thought imperialism went away. I think it's not like it. Yeah. I wouldn't think like what the America does now is, is imperialism. I've heard some people call it neo imperialism. That's uh, a fun word. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't like, like, there's look, a, yeah. I'm not trying to. I'm, I'm just saying that I think that, like, many, I see your point. Like, global warming, right? Like, burning coal or mining the ground, right? It, it sort of feels like the Western world has been having an enormous party for about the last 200 years, but now the beer is running out. And so when other people show up with their beer, the Western world is like, whoa, 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 you have to ration your beer, man. We're running out. We'll take a few of those. You can't drink them too quickly. You know, and it's like, well, we've been kind of having our party for the longest time, and, and now things are kind of getting sketchy, but other people only just getting started. Who are we to tell them that they can't have a rager? Yeah. Well, wasn't the NASA structure of as long as you're not military, you can plug into the system the way of including them into the rager versus saying limiting them? The limiting factor is when they tried doing their like the military uh, civilians, as you were saying. So it does seem like there was a structure for them to plug into the system and take advantage of the West having a razor for 200 years and having the experience of it. They were they were kind of allowed to come in and there was a guy named Chugs and he was like, hey, this is how we, you do beer pong and stuff. They were willing to show him everything, but they were like, you got to put your guns at the door. You can't come in here. And they weren't willing to do that. And that yeah, seems I mean, to be right. What, what, right. We yeah. said, you have to come play, but you have to play on our terms. And they said, we don't want to play on your terms. So we said, okay, yeah. you can't play. So they said, fine, we'll play on our own. I mean, hmm. That was basically it. Seems it kind of, right? Yeah, it seems kind of weird. Like, if, if I was China, I would go in, take everything I could, if the uh, objective ultimately was to do your own thing, take all the knowledge, then build my own structure, and then switch switch it slowly over time as I slowly uh, accrue everything. And uh, then, like, it's kind of like a like a bow constrictor, just slowly suffocates you and takes away your, your breath to the point where you don't really notice it, and then you pass out. Well, I mean, they, they seem to gain the knowledge they needed in a relatively you know in 20 in 20 years ish they went from having no real serious space program to being very capable of launching rockets into orbit and now i mean there's a space station right now as as i understand it that's orbiting the planet so mm. i mean you're not wrong but hey i mean they did it either way right or wrong they are very capable now yeah yeah I, they are I the should... reason that the u.s declared the fourth domain of war you know, open for business again, right? Yeah. Because they yeah. said they were going to the moon and, and America was very worried. Western world was very worried about what that meant in terms of, you know, they did not want the Chinese showing up, putting down a flag and saying, this is ours now. Yeah. And it seems like that would be something they would do. I just think they if, they treated it, if they treated it more like a relay race where they could come and grab the baton and keep going forward, I, I just wonder where the world would be with that type of progression. But at the same time, it does seem like the military jumping into things allowed the structure of SpaceX to exist and all these other companies that will potentially move things uh, forward faster. Uh, the downside is like maybe it ends up, you know, killing lots of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not here. To yeah. 
I don't want to get sucked into the debate of whether China's doing the right thing or the wrong thing or oh, Western world yeah. the right thing or the wrong thing or that's all just a mess. Um so but but yeah, maybe I I I take the view that we'll we'll probably do more together than we ever will alone. Although yeah. the flip side of that argument is though ironically, right? When we were doing everything together, we did almost nothing. We had the ISS. You know, it, it was useful. We learned things. I'm not trying to poo it. Or I'm not trying to say it's bad. But it certainly doesn't just doesn't scream with the naked ambition of the moon missions. That's it. You know? Yeah. Um, and so we could have gone back. We could have had moon bases by now. We could have done all this stuff. And we didn't do it because we were all going together. It wasn't, in fact, until one person said, sorry, then do my own thing but suddenly <laughs> off we all went so um but yeah i don't know i mean it's it's an arms race right it, it's a new arms race hypersonics and space flight among other topics are an arms race that the western world is currently in with china and russia there's no no two ways about that yeah yeah and then uh for the for the iss I feel like the idea of deorbiting it is just kind of a, a travesty, but at the same time, maybe there's like it's like gotten to the point where it's like bent back and forth too many times, and it's at the end of the shelf. I feel like what if we just you know glued four or five Falcon rockets to it, and then move it to like you know the moon's orbit, and we used it as a staging thing, like a little Grange point. Like why do we have to bring it? Assuming it's still good, why can't we just you know glue a bunch of rockets to it and bring it out to somewhere more stable? There, there are some people advocating for that. Actually, I've had a few private conversations with some NASA folk that would like to see it. I mean, the functional functional lifetime of that space station is done. You know, like the Chinese space, the newest Chinese space station in comparison to the ISS looks so much more shiny. There's just everything's so new, right? Like you think how much computers have changed. Since you know, some of those computers went up there in 1990 and never, you know, they're still using them or bits mm-hmm. for them, right? It's just this legacy nightmare. And so I, I don't know how functional it would be, but certainly people are calling for it to be memorialized, right? Like you say, stabilize the orbit, move it out to somewhere else, park it there. The problem you have is that there's the sheer amount of money. It, it represents an enormous risk in terms of it breaking up because the ISS is 400 tons of stuff. And so if it comes apart, mm. that's one hell of a debris field that you now have to deal with. Oh, yeah. So the risk involved with, you know, and it's not, desi- it's not designed to be accelerated to those kind of altitudes, right? Like it was, and maybe it's within the limits of the thing. I don't, I don't know, right? It, it has the ability to accelerate so you put more fuel in it but so you you would have to like tow it up to a much much higher altitude to have it out of the way of everything so much so that if it disintegrated it wouldn't cause too much of a problem and given the current priorities of nasa you know they're struggling to just do the mission that's been handed to them right now i don't think that i don't think anyone there likes the idea i think it is just an unfortunate necessity of their budget constraint and i and i agree i mean i would love to see that thing preserved you know like i i grew up on pictures of it i would one day love to go to that compeller module um i hear the whole thing smells awful just absolutely rancid 
you know, like when you go, you ever go to like a music, one of those camping music festivals by the third day of not showering, you know, you all smell terrible, but nobody realizes kind of thing. Yeah. Imagine it's a lot like that. Yeah. Um, I think they use uh, moist towels and stuff. They don't, they don't have showers. Yeah, indeed. Um, but yeah, so I've heard the smells a little impressive, but and may, hey, maybe they got better. I don't know, but um, the, it's part know, of the experience. Experience the sequoia, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but that's not the point. Right? I mean, it's just I grew up on those images, dreaming that one day I might be in that Capella module that we got on the planet, right? And, and so, more than most, I, I would I would love to see it preserved. But the the even beyond the cost, I think the risk, yeah, that comes with basically destroying an entire. You know, we're already so worried about debris and orbits and who owns what and what do you do and and especially with the militarization of these things, right? All you need is a few good missiles to blow up a couple of satellites. And the next thing you know, you have some enormous uh debris field, right? Within around the mm. place, which could be could cause a chain reaction of exploding satellites, and the next thing you know, everything's trashed. But um, you know, what do you do about that? Yeah. We don't really have good answers for collecting space debris. Um, and, uh, you know, especially when a grain of sand at 20,000 miles an hour will, will blow an enormous, you know, one foot wide hole into a block of aluminium. Google that if you're ever. Yeah, bored. I've seen it. It's, it's yeah. creepy. And so, you know, just I, I don't, and I, when you're in space is enormous. You think the planet Earth is big. Imagine, you know, the volume, you know, the, the planet that the, the orbit represents is it's absolutely gigantic, right? It's mm. um, and then trying to find every grain of sand in it is cataclysmic. It's cataclysmic. And at the moment, going to space is relatively simple because you aren't basically being shot at constantly by space debris. But hey, you know that that could change. <laughs> Be a fun mm. new engineering challenge. Yeah, I think I, I saw one engineering project that was working on deal with the sand it was like uh uh it was from it was i think it was called like project Spaceballs. it like uh they clicked the button and a giant ship it kind of got like a little hoover max thing and it kind of stuck itself on the this isn't real this is a movie <laughs> i'm not being serious but they sucked all the atmosphere I out so reference space balls <laughs> merchandising merchandising yeah. <laughs> yeah, it turns out you actually have a part a sponsor agreement with them right it's just one really weird um, yeah, I mean, there are things you can do, but by the time you can do those things, you know, it's like if you can fix it, it's not a problem, mm -hmm. right? But we can't fix it, so it is a problem. Um, and so, it, yeah, there's absolutely nothing. It's like at any any given moment, your oil rig could turn into two thousand square kilometers of sea mines. You know, whoops a daisy. And by the way, I really needed to see it sail a lot of boats through there. And I have no way of collecting all the mines. And you're like, well, you have a bad day then. I mean, and so yeah. you know, part of it maybe is around just, you know, the human race needs to get used to people dying in space because we got used to people dying in every other part of the planet, right? On Mount yeah. Everest, in on airplanes, on boats, on the ground, underground. Mm -hmm. Um and maybe that's just going to become yet another unfortunate fact of living. I, I don't know. Um, or maybe, you know, you run, you do your best to run through this band of debris in an unpressurized spaceship. And you just hope that the, the debris doesn't physically hit you as a person. I, you know, I don't know. But, 
If you if you could track where you were going and then right before you were about to hit the debris field, you like sent up like a giant plasma ball that would like clear it out ahead of you. Cool. And then you go within the ball and then, then you get out the other side. I mean, that's basically a shield. If you could have like some magnetically confined plasma ball, that's just now you're just talking about shields. Yeah. You've gone full on Star Trek or possibly yeah. Star Wars. We need shields. We need yeah, shields. Possibly the ship should be triangular and the, the shield emitters should be two like radar dome looking things right on top. Yeah. 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 And uh, we call like inter, in, inter. I don't have any other plan words. I need, I need someone who's good at, uh, I was trying to like bring an interdictor to it without like, you know, being on the nose on it. But um, <laughs> the, it was a risky joke. It was worth the attempt. Yes. The, so I think I have like uh, three last questions, which doesn't really make sense. But the, uh, sure. the third to the last question is people talk often about when they go to the moon and they look at Earth, just like a profound experience. And when I imagine it, like it almost like cracks my head a little bit. Do you? Do you ever imagine what it would be like to look like when you see those pictures where someone's sitting there and looking at the the Earth? What does that feel like to you? Do you, like in terms of how you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I hope one day. Well, my stretch goal is to die in orbit of Jupiter, but that's a conversation for a different day. So we can make that happen. I hope so. Um, but uh, yeah, please go to my GoFundMe. <laughs> Um, I only need a few hundred billion trillion dollars. Um, so yeah, I have I have thought of that. The, one of the things I often think about flipping it around is the moon is probably the largest thing most people will ever see that has any detail. I mean, you can stare at the sun. Please don't stare at the sun for those listening. But Staring other the than sun. the sun, which is incomprehensibly large, the moon is one third the diameter of the earth. Right. So when you look at the man in the moon. Right, or that little black splotch that looks sort of the gray splotch that looks like one of the eyes, that is probably about the size of America. That little dot. Maybe bigger, who knows, right? And so the first thing to think of, if you were on the moon looking back on the Earth, it would only be three times wider than the moon. Hmm. So if you stand there one day and you look, you know, you... Oh, okay. Okay, that's the moon. And then you can go... And guess that's how big Earth would look. That's not that impressive, then. I don't. Well, it's not like the pictures where it's like half of the half of the screen or something, right? Or it's the whole horizon. I I still struggle to believe, at least for me, and I'm sure many others, that it wouldn't be insanely profound to look back on your own planet while standing on its moon, knowing the sheer distance that's been between you and that there is this ocean of black, you know, that you sailed across to get there. It's, I don't know, it's just hard. It's hard to imagine. Much as I think how people must have felt crossing the Atlantic to come to America, right, or people that discovered new lands. They they couldn't even believe that could be there, right? This your whole suddenly your whole worldview turns upside down, especially in this because you're not even on a world anymore. Right? You, you suddenly mm. you really are accepting that there are many. Yours is but one, one of such a tiny number two. You know, like when you start to open that box, there are 
about 100 billion suns in our galaxy and about 100 billion galaxies. And the better our telescopes get, I think the last guess I heard was they think there's about one Earth-like planet around every sun. Mm. Well, I think actually the statistic I heard was there's about 100 billion Earth-like planets, which means there's about one per sun. We have an average sun with an average solar system and an average number of planets. Right? Mm. That's, that's what that tells us. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just mind-boggling to think that there would be a hundred billion other Earth-like planets, Earth-type planets. I don't know if they're like Earth, but mm-hmm. they're sort of about our size, about our temperature. You know, what does that mean? I just God. And when you stand on that moon looking back on, you know, our Earth, what do you think about? Do you think about how you can't see any of the countries. It looks nothing like a map. Do you just just stare at it and look at the beauty of this vividly blue dot from all the my scattering? Sometimes I look up at Mars in the sky and it is a little bit red. You can kind of tell. Mm-hmm. And if you get a telescope, you can see it. And I, even that just blows my mind that I can see enough of a planet that I can tell what color it is. Because Jupiter is just a white dot. All the other planets just little white dots to me, at least. Maybe some mm. of your viewers have better eyes, but but to be able to stand there and back, I don't know, that, that just blows my mind. I, I find that hard to to almost imagine, really. Mm-hmm. Like what it must feel like existentially. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, sometimes I wonder if like if we like sound like Joe Rogan there and we gave him some psilocybin, like what the <laughs> heck would he say? So you're like you're like compounding. The thing, like, give him like a podcast studio, get him on the moon, looking at Earth, and then just like juice him with some psilocybin and just let him fly. I, just I, just, I fly. wonder. Yeah, I wonder what gravity does, you know, because uh, you know, gravity affects like the, you know, fluid and whatnot, like how you metabolize things. So, I would you do that for science. I, yeah. Oh yeah, hey, yeah, me. for science. Okay, you know, like Leon, we need you to take a ton of drugs in low gravity and stare back. And uh, we need you to have two massively existential experiences piled on top of each other. One, you're going to trip a shit ton of balls. And the other one, we're going to break most of the everyday expectations you have of literally the entire world around you by putting you on another one. And you're like, wow, I, who knows, right? I mean, and somebody somewhere is going to be the first person to trip balls on the moon. Yeah. It's probably going to yeah, be I- a military experiment, in fact. It's gonna be Joe Rogan. He's gonna volunteer for it. The, well, I think <laughs> if they, what I would, what I would want them to do is they have the, they like put something over your eyes and they time it so that like they have like all your your body, uh, yeah. that like they have you plugged up, and then so they know when you're about to hit, and then they turn you over and then they rip it off, and then you, you the first time you see the Earth is when you're when you're like, like just as you're right coming peak, off or something. Yeah, right. At peak. I don't do drugs, so I don't know how this works. But I feel like there's there's got to be a peak. They get you on that Everest, and they just like record everything. Right. And I feel like it's got to be like that cartoon, like your eyes get uh, smaller and bigger at the same time or something. I don't know. Someone yeah. who's done these things can uh, write in about this. But uh, the uh, related to that, you said you wanted to die on Saturn. I think or was it Saturn yeah, or in, Jupiter? Yeah. Um, in orbit. Well, I don't know. Do we think the rings are better? I'm not sure. I mean the rings. I don't think you'd see them if you were there. I, I, either either the, yeah, the moons. Yeah, yeah, because it's they're pretty spacious. Maybe Europa then. I could die in Europa. Yeah. Well, do you wanna do you wanna live there then die or do you wanna like die in impact? 
I, there's a question I'm about to ask. I mean, honestly, I would I would take either, but preferably, mm. yeah. Just you know, I just figure when you're really old, body's a bit worn out, right? And your bone density's crap anyway. Man, zero G might be kind of a blessing. Yeah. You know, you can have like zero G care homes. Yeah. I can't stand up. Not a problem. Yeah, that was in contact. Old guy was uh, worried about falling, so he went into space. Halden mm, or Hayden? Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah, right. Okay. Well, I guess with that in mind, then we should definitely do the GoFundMe to get the ISS out there, and you could kind of retire to it. I was thinking, if you just were fine with like Dynamite Impact, is uh, I was wondering how much like you're you're only a couple hundred pounds. If we just like put everything out and gave you just enough food to like last the you know just full blast with a like a, a Saturn yeah. Nine or something, yeah, could we get you with a Falcon Nine to uh, Saturn? Is there like enough? capacity like delta v to get you there if it's just you and like a couple hundred pounds of food stock and then like they made it really cold i don't know maybe they put you in like an induced coma so it could be really like slow your metabolism as well i, I, I wonder there's i'm just saying there might be an option to make it happen my maybe, maybe memory, do this my memory of several nasa white papers which are probably a bit old by now but i think that starship could get you into a generic, like you'd have, you'd probably have to do some gravity assists. And then the question becomes, what's your transfer time? And can you reasonably take enough food with you mm. that would just even keep me alive on my own? And then of course the question becomes, do I just go back shit insane? Right. What happens when you lock someone in zero G? Right. Cause I won't like gravity's actually quite, but if you're if you're thinking of actually traveling in space, you have to have gravity. Um, they, you know, there's two twins they put up into to space, and one of them stayed up there a year. Man, he still has some issues, right? Like mm-hmm. their bone density gets rid. There's a reason you see astronauts sat down, right? They, you know, they pick them up on chairs and they carry them off like they're heroes or it's some kind of bar mitzvah or something, right? Um, it's because those astronauts can't stand and won't be able to stand quite possibly for days or weeks, right? They are very weak. They have incredible vertigo. Um, like it, space does, you know, the human body is designed to constantly be stressed right? by, by gravity, right? to always be loaded. And, and your body is always looking for ways to recycle the bits of you that are no longer being used. So if you stop using muscles or bone density, it just take, it dissolves it out and puts it somewhere else. Um, and so you, you, I mean, there are studies that the, the bone density loss on astronauts can be astronomical. You know, some of them will come back very fit. You know, 40 year old men will come back with a bone density of geriatric 90 year old women, you know? Mm. Um, and so what that journey would even do is hard to say. You know, very see if you read, there's a NASA white paper on when doing a Mars mission. It's about a 500 day transfer window. You know, the, the the white paper says they don't think if they if they did that, if they sent those astronauts, they said the shortest amount of time you can send them for it. So the shortest window of mission is two weeks because we think it'll be that long basically before they, they're functional again and they can pick up enough rocks and come home, right? Just mm. grabs whatever saw samples around you, get back on the rocket. Um, you know, they, they won't be able to get out of the spacesuits. They won't get out of the spaceship. You'll have to have the spaceship load them into the, you'll have to send the base, have it be self-assembling, 
and then they'll land and you'll have to have something basically throw them into the base. And then they're going to spend about three days vomiting into their spacesuits. And then at some point they might be strong enough to get out. Hmm. That sounds pleasant. Yeah, it didn't sound great. So yeah, gravity, man, spinny things. Again, like Space Station's nice, but some gravity would be great, you know. Um, just spin something. I want yeah. to eat. Come on, NASA. Yeah, we can do it with buckets. The uh, yeah. so I I know we're we're going over, so I'm going to skip. <laughs> it works. If it works. It works in cog. If it works in KSP, and if it works with buckets. Yes, come on. It's like when people say. If the, if I can balance my checkbook, why can't the U.S. government balance theirs? So the, the it's a little unfair. So I'm going to skip some questions because I know we're we're way over. Um, and I will be respectful of your time. What is at least one book that you recommend people check out? One book that I think that you've enjoyed. Yeah. Enjoyed. Uh, one I actually think about more often than not. It's a book called Range, which hasn't got much to do mm. with rockets particularly, but it's by a guy. And he just maybe, you know, as as one of these people, he talks about the the joy of people with a broad range of instead of being very heavily specialized and going really down one tiny narrow path, he talks about the value of having broad range of experience. And he in some and in, and in a, what I really enjoy about the book, by way of doing that, he talks a lot about the taxonomy of problems, which is not really something you ever hear about which is a shame actually if you start to think of the taxonomy of problems and how they break out and how they work and how you solve them right different types of problems should be come at from different ways um and that was just yeah it was a really interesting book i I thought it was a really good one Mm -hmm. i'll check it out one i'd recommend to you is uh, jim Contral's new book that just came out uh breaking all the rules he talks about the new space age and uh how he's like kidnapped by russians and he helped like build a space i think he was like the first vp of uh, business development at spacex and i don't know if you know who jim control is but i'd recommend that book to you i read it right. i had him on the show breaking all the rules all right yeah it's fantastic it's really well written and there's <laughs> it's a little really funny too but, yeah, um, okay go check it out yeah and uh i don't get any affiliate for recommending it so you can yeah, trust I was gonna say, but, it's basically you sponsored by space balls and breaking all the rules I would love to be sponsored by Spaceballs because then I'm, I'm one Kevin Bacon away from George Lucas and I, I have some ideas. You should, uh, or you could write a book called Breaking All the Spaceballs. Yeah. I don't know if anyone would read it. I'm not hey. a great writer. There's a reason why I do podcasts. Yeah, these guys will <laughs> have shadow writers. Come on. We have, yeah, ChatGPT. Chat G- just ChatGPT, right? Hey, ChatGPT, yeah. write me a book about Breaking All the Rules. Yeah, they could work. I recently suggested that to someone. So the uh, all right. So I want to thank everyone for coming on today. Was Leon a rocket scientist, a storyteller, or an idiot? Which one of those reigns supreme? It's up to you now to vote. <laughs> be nice. Be nice. Don't but, be uh, nice. Don't be yes. nice. You mean okay? All right. We got three. We got three votes. I want to see it in the comments. Uh, the first one who answers that gets pinned. Um, Leon, thanks for coming on the show and for letting us go long w- without uh, texting me to stop it. Yeah, you're you're uh, very welcome. I had fun. <laughs>